Welcome back. A passenger aboard a tourist train in Colorado snapped a peculiar photograph that appears to feature a sizable figure standing in the wilderness, and some suspect that the curious anomaly could be Bigfoot. And you can check out the video and the photo. That's in the carousel up at coasttocoastam.com. And coming up tonight on Coast, retired postmaster Albert Barbato experienced childhood alien encounters. And he joins George Nouri to discuss his long cross-country road trip that helped him remember his alien interactions as well as past lives and how getting out of his comfort zone set in motion a swift and massive spiritual awakening. In the second half, with a 30-year-old with a 30-year career in clinical trial research and medical publications, Pamela Nance has conducted over 100 paranormal and UFO investigations and presented her research to various groups, including the Rhine Research Center. And she'll share her paranormal experiences, including an NDE and missing time. That's tonight into um, Sunday night into Monday morning on Coast to Coast AM with George Nori. All right, back to uh, more of my conversation with David Edward as we discuss Atlantis, right here on Coast to Coast AM. And we are back with David Edward, the author of Atlantis Solved, the Final Definitive Proof. Where is it? It's in the Western Sahara. It's known as the Rishat Structure. Well, that's the uh, that's the city. And um, then we have, of course, the, uh, the the continent, which would be, I guess, the surrounding uh, area of the, uh, of, uh, the city in the Western Sahara. We have the kingdom, which... I guess is what, 10? Did you say 10 provinces, David? Yeah, it's the capital and then nine other provinces for a total of 10. The other thing that uh, the Plato Dialogues um, talk about in terms of the criteria is that the Atlanteans conquered Libya and Europe. So that's kind of that kind of lines up right with Western Sahara because it has to be in proximity. Yeah, well, that's what, you know, one of the rules that, you know, we said if we're taking this thing literally – we're told two things happened. We're told that the Atlanteans held sway inside the, the Strait of Gibraltar, basically in the Mediterranean. Uh, they had conquered parts of Europe and parts of Libya all the way to um, Egypt. But we're also told that the Greeks, now these would be proto-Greeks because we're talking about it a really long time ago, but we're told that they counterattacked. And even in the, in the Critias dialogue, we're told that the Greek warriors were present at the capital when the cataclysm uh, hit and you know it all kind of and it sank into the ocean. It all fell apart. So if if both of those are true, then the the geography has to support some type of you know um, being close to where Greece is, because or else why would you, would you wage war? And there is no model uh, in any history book or any imagination that the proto Greeks of 9600 BC would have had the seafaring technology to, you know, do a counterattack against Antarctica or Mexico or the Bimini Road. It's just, it's not going to happen. It's too far. Uh, you know, there, there's no, uh, there's no societal interest in waging war that far away. Um, the other thing you had mentioned, the continent, just to touch base on that, and then we'll run through some of the major points where this Rishat structure meets the dialogue. But the, we're told the continent is bigger than Libya and Asia combined. And Libya is basically the northern part of Africa um, that's not Egypt, uh, to, to the Atlas Mountains. Uh, this is in Plato's time. And then 
Uh, Asia is basically what we would call Asia Minor, or, or more specifically Turkey. It's basically where the Persians were, um, and uh, you know that was a piece they worried about. And for example, Alexander the Great later, after after all of this, you know he gets to India and he starts weeping because he thinks he's conquered the entire continent, but India is only about halfway. So if you look at that, if you look at Libya and Asia Minor, it's, that that is about a million square miles. So we're told the continent has to be bigger than a million square miles. This is another thing that's often dismissed when we're looking for it. There is no landmass that has a, a, a regional um, topology that's close to Greece that, that, can, that can meet that. There is no landmass other than Western Africa. And if you dig into the history or, of words, uh, continent doesn't actually have a, a definition. It, it's a contrivance um, or a convenience. So basically, we have seven continents today just because kind of we decided we did. So Asia and Europe are separated through distance and mountains. And if you look at Central and Western Africa, there actually is a ring of mountains in Eastern Mali, I'm sorry, yeah, Mali, um, and uh, the other parts of Africa that would make it a continent from, from Plato's standpoint or from the ancient Egyptian standpoint. So yes, yeah, so that becomes a continent. And in the kingdom, I think, we find all the way up the eastern coast, all, all up to uh, Doggerland, which is, um, you know, Britain. And then we do find it in the Americas where the currents take you. Uh, the other thing I didn't mention, just I didn't set the stage well for that writing system. I mentioned the 37,000-year-old writing system that Cambridge University um, talked about yes. earlier this year. If, if, if you go right now to Google and you type in when was writing invented, it'll tell you 3,400 B.C. So we're talking an order of magnitude. You know, we're talking tens of thousands of years. Writing just got pushed back, and that was just three months ago, two months ago. Wow. Um, wow. Yeah. So, you know, and another thing before I get into the another thing they found is in um, the Amazon rainforest, about where you land, about where the currents take you if you go there in a Nupa boat from Morocco. Uh, but this is two years ago, three years ago now. They found an eight-mile-long wall, rock wall, that has paintings of animals and symbols and all kinds of stuff. But it's eight miles long, and it's about 20, 25 feet high. Um, so, and, and, and they dated that to 12,600 years ago. Atlantis was destroyed 11,600 years ago. So we have massive writing, and, and things look like hieroglyphics, in the Amazon a thousand years before we're told Atlantis was destroyed. So if we just wait long enough, you know, they're, they're, they're finally making their way to this. And if we ignore their conclusions and just look at the data, the data for a lot of stuff going on tens of thousands of years ago, it's all there. We just got to make our own, draw our own conclusions from it. Um, any, any, um, uh, the, that concentric circle uh, that we see in ancient sites around the world that's tied to the Atlanteans, any of those ever discovered uh, on the, in the continental United States? Yeah, absolutely. In, in Barbados and in, in all the Caribbean islands, in Mexico, matter of fact, what's so cool, if this is ridiculously cool, is if you take all the European caves and then you go down, there's like 400 of them, and you kind of map them out how you would walk. They, they, they are on a line from Central Europe to basically Cadiz, which is um, north of um, Africa and Spain. It's, it's a place some people think they found remnants of Atlantis. But if you hop into the Nuba boat there, you go down the coast of Africa, and the currents take you to uh, the Bahamas and then to Mexico, and the cave writings continue on exactly that place in Mexico. 
And they're also found all over the American Southwest. You can trace them. Matter of fact, one of the things I think I'm going to do, I'm writing a bigger book on Atlantis. You can you can trace these spiral symbols, these spiral petroglyphs. I think they show the, the I'm going to use that word migration. I think they show the path, the trade routes that people traveled all over the world. I think we're going to find the Silk Road and all the stuff that was going on in the American Southwest and Europe and Africa. I, I think there is a pattern to it all. And I think these petroglyphs are going to give us that. In fact, I think I have it. I just have to work it up so I can explain it and people can see it. So what does Plato tell us about the destruction of – now, when we're talking about the destruction of Atlantis, we're talking about this, this, the city, the, Rash, the, uh, the, the Rishkat structure, right? The Rishat okay. structure. Right, yeah. Yeah, so what, what he tells us well, – and, and, and so the time period – and I kind of jumped to 9600 BC. I, I, I very quickly said how we get there. It's kind of a magical date. So you know, we're always doing the test of if Plato's just making this up, at some point we're going to have to say that – we have so many things, it's not all just a coincidence. And it starts with that date. 9600 BC is kind of a magical date. It, it's the end of the last ice age. We are um, hip deep into the what they call the pre-pottery Neolithic. And we're also, starting around 10,000 years ago, um, we're dealing with the what they call the Neolithic Revolution or the Neolithic Renaissance. And it's where we start to see that transition from hunter-gatherers to the agrarian communities, which I think makes complete sense. When you Again, if you read the dialogues, what does Plato really tell us about the Atlanteans? He says, um, yeah, they're, they're pretty well organized, uh, and they were really good at agriculture. Those are kind of the two things he really likes about them. So the fact that we have a story dating to a period when we know we're having a Neolithic agrarian renaissance, and then we have a story that says maybe where it is originating from, and we find the trade route, and we see how they're communicating, and we can see why pyramids pop up at the same time, and why ideas are, seem to be shared across the globe, but a little differently, right? Because only a couple people going through, and, and they're exchanging the ideas. So it, it all just starts to line up. And then if you want, I can, I can go into all the physical attributes of the Rishat that he gives us that, that, that match it, which is pretty compelling, I think. Yeah, well, we have, some, we have a little bit of time here before the break at the bottom of the hour. So... Um, first of all, do we, do we want to identify what the, what the cataclysm was? Well, you know, so we, we know there was one, the, the end of the last ice age, 9,600 BC is an event called the younger Dryas. And, um, I looked all this up because I didn't know, you know, what's a Dryas, what's a younger Dryas. Well, it turns out there are three Dryases. There's the oldest Dryas, the older Dryas, and the youngest Dryas. And a Dryas is a flowering plant that grows really well at higher elevations when it's cold. So they can, when they're you know, looking at the layers in the ground, when they find a lot of these plants, they know it was colder. Uh, so something happened at, at 9600 BC. We know the temperature of the Earth rose 30 or 40 degrees Fahrenheit very quickly. And by very quickly, it could be anything from a year, half a year. It could have been a day. We don't know because it's impossible to tell that, you know, looking that far back. But something happened. There's Some people think maybe it was a tsunami um, caused by, like, a comet impact or an asteroid impact. Uh, it could just be, you know, if the sun, we had a solar flare and it melted the ice and all that weight shifting around causes the Atlantic Ridge to shift because the Atlantic Ridge is very thin. And if it shifted correctly because the weight's redistributing, it would send the tsunami uh, to Western Africa. Um, we know that Africa, Western Africa at this point, is we're in the middle of what they call the Green Sahara. So it's kind of a climate, like I live in Florida, um, so it's kind of like northern Florida or Georgia. 
so it's raining every day, you know, and it's, and it's fertile and you can grow stuff. Uh, so we know all of that. I don't, I'm, I don't want to have to defend ancient Younger Dryas comet impact theory as part of me trying to explain Atlantis. Um, we know something happened, and there's, a, there's three or four really good candidates, but we, but we know something happened, and that's all we need for Atlantis because it was, you know, the story right. tells us it was destroyed, and we know something happened. Yeah. So, so what, when, you, when, you, when we look at the Rishad structure, what does it, I mean, what were the effects of whatever this cataclysm was? What did it do to the Rishad structure? Yeah, well, it blasted it down basically to the bones, and there's a line. I don't know if I have it. Um, I can find it real quick. Uh, yeah, so here we go. So here is and here's a line from the dialogues that, that people never hear. And this, he's not the, – the Critias who's talking in the dialogue is not specifically talking about Atlantis. He's trying to explain what happens after these cataclysms. And he says this. He says, the earth has fallen away all around and sunk out of sight. The consequence is that in comparison of what was then there – are remaining only the bones of the wasted body, as they may be called, as in the case of small islands, all the richer and softer parts of the soil having fallen away, and the mere skeleton of the land being left. And that's exactly what we see at the Rishat. It, it, it's bedrock, and it's a skeleton. So you kind of have to, when you look at it, you have to think of it in a very lush, rainy, it's actually it would be in the middle of a lake, and then you have to project with your brain like a 100-foot of topsoil, because we know that that was there. We're told that was there. And then the conditions were given um, would have been a mud flood. Uh, and it slid down, like I said, about 100 miles, 150 miles um, to the southwest. Uh, right. Okay. So um, I, I lost. Yes. I, yeah, I figured I should stop talking after a while. <laughs> no. Um, uh, yeah, we, we. I think you. I think you described. It's pretty desolate. In other words, oh yeah, um, yeah. Although we found stuff, I'm. I'm. I'm saving it towards you. I know. I don't, I don't want to. We. We have found a technology there, and I want to. In the next segment, I'll, I'll open with it because while there's nothing at the Rishat, it's just bedrock. Ten miles to the north, and then a little bit to the south, we. We have evidence. We have evidence of the technology, um, and this is a, a big discovery that we've made. I've made, I guess. Um, is part of looking for this. But this is the, it's the last piece that will prove it, which we can go over um, a little later. I do want to, do want to run through kind of the key points of what the dialogue say and how it matches the Rishat. Yes, please. Okay. So, and there's uh, many people over many years have developed Atlantis tests. So the big Atlantis test is like this 50-point list. I'm not going to hit you. I'm not going to try and go over all 50 points, but there's like 15 or 20 of them that are like really key and kind of paint the picture. So the first thing we're told in the dialogue, she says that uh, the, the geography of Atlantis has to have a center island, and then it has to have two additional rings of land and water. We have that here at the Rishat, Rishat understanding that we were in the middle of the Green Sahara. It sits in a basin that would have been a lake. There would have been a, a river flowing to the sea, which is how rivers work. Um, and it has that configuration, which we don't see anywhere else. So everywhere else we're told is Atlantis only has one ring that I've ever seen. Uh, he was told that there must be evidence of a canal, and the distance from the start to the end of the canal would be 50 stadia. And when we read it, we're told that it extends from the sea to an inner harbor. So 50 stadia, using that math, you multiply it by 607 feet divided by 5,280. Uh, 50 stadia comes out to about five and three-quarter miles. So I read the, um, that statement is it needs to be five and three-quarter miles from the sea, which is the outer ring, to an inner harbor. If you measure the Rishat structure, and there is a spot on the inside that looks like it could be a harbor, and if you draw a straight line there, it's five and three-quarter miles. So it, it matches that. Wow, uh, told, case closed. 
But there's well, yeah, more. Exposed, but it, but it, yeah, but there's not even, and, and there's there's evidence of a channel, and we're also told that on the outer ring they cut um, sections out of the land that were three stadia, which is eighteen hundred feet, and then they built bridges over them so that boats could go under them. One boat could go under, but the people could kind of still walk around the um, the, the circle. And we find that the out on the outer ring of the Rishat structure is an eighteen hundred foot channel that's been dug into the bedrock that exactly fits what Plato told us. Um, we're told that uh, the city of Atlantis was sheltered to the north and open to the south. Well, Rishad has that. It's, there's mountains to the north and it's open to the south. Well, we're told that, uh, I already mentioned this, the 3,000 stadia to the sea, but also it's on a plane, uh, which is 2,000 stadia across, so it's 3,000 deep and 2,000 across. We have that exact measurement around the Rishat. It sits 345 miles up a gently sloping plain with mountains to the north, exactly like the dialogue says. And then if you measure across from the northern mountains to the next mountain range in Africa, it's 230 miles. And if you do that math, um, uh, you take uh, 2,000 stadia multiplied by 670, you, get, you come out with 230 miles. So, again, we have both dimensions of that given to us. Uh, we know, as I already mentioned this, but we know that it's, 340 miles to the sea, and it sits at about 1,500 foot, so we know the slope, and it is a gen- it's a gentle slope. It's under 1%, which is kind All of- this is visible uh, from Google Earth? All this is visible from Google Earth. Yeah, this is, and that's the thing. There's nothing that I'm going to say that everyone who has Google can't go out and verify. And, and this is one reason why I like it. I, you don't have to believe in glacial rebound theory and crustal displacement. You don't have to do any of that. All of this is ver- verifiable just with your eye and a little bit of time. Atlantis solved. David Edward stays with us, and uh, we'll take a quick time out, come back, take some of your calls as well, right here on Coast to Coast AM. Welcome back. Egyptian antiquities officials say they've confirmed the existence of a hidden internal corridor above the main entrance of the Great Pyramid of Giza. Video from an endoscopic, or an endoscope rather, show the inside of the corridor, which is 30 feet long and 7 feet wide. The officials say it could have been created to redistribute the pyramid's weight around the entrance or another as yet undiscovered chamber. It was first uh, first detected in 2016 using an imaging technique called uh, muography. And you can read the rest of this story in the in the news section of at coasttocoastam.com. All right, back to uh, more of my conversation with David Edward, the author of Atlantis Solved, plus your questions and comments right here on Coast to Coast AM. And we're back with David Edward, the author of Atlantis Solved. Atlantis Solved. Uh, we've, we solved Atlanta a long time ago, but Atlantis Solved. Uh, let's go to the phones east of the Rockies, and Jonathan is in Indiana. Jonathan, welcome to Coast. Hey, thank you. Um, and uh, I think that kind of covered my question already with the um, talking. But the um, I was just going to bring up the, the, uh, the tombs and the um, structures across the, uh, the earth you know, um, and how they kind of um, line up with where Atlantis is, um, you know, like with Machu Picchu and Easter Island and um, Giza, um, that, that's kind of a little bit south, but it goes in a straight line. Uh, but the um, Mexican um, structure, like the Teotihuacan, um, kind of goes right, if you draw a straight line, it goes right through Giza 
all the way over to uh, Shen, uh, the structure in China. <laughs> I'm sorry, but um, that's kind of like a straight line. So what I was thinking is maybe that that was kind of used to be um, the equator. And um, but I'm, I'm, when is the um, the uh, like the uh, uncovering of Atlantis going to start? Uh, but thank you. Sure. Yeah. Well, they're, right. they're strip mining. They're, they're strip mining it right now. Um, I, I think, and, and uh, to answer Jonathan's question, I think you know and he was kind of alluding to ley lines and, and things like that. I think if you look at the currents of the oceans and then the paths that you would have to take to get from one side of uh, the land to the other side, and you marry those up to where the currents run, I think that explains a lot of the Neolithic and Petroglyphic and uh, prehistory locations better than um, common, was that, longitude or, you know, ley lines and stuff. Because the, the, the rhythm and the harmony that I think, I think the Atlanteans were dealing with were, were very much not religious and very practical. It's just there's a time when you get on the boat because there's a time when it's best to cross, right? There's a time when it's best to plant. And it, it, you need to know it very practically. So you have to measure the solstices, and you have to keep track of animals and know when their birthing seasons are and all that stuff. But it's a very practical answer. So in um, 9600, when this cataclysm occurred, mm-hmm. uh, and it, it mainly affected, obviously, the Western Sahara and the Rishad structure. So the city, the capital, the city proper of Atlantis um, – but there were, you know, there were other uh, provinces, nine other provinces of Atlantis that survived. So, what happened to the rest of the Atlanteans? Do we know? Yeah, I think I think I mean, we have we have signs of them all over the place. I think when you look in Central and South America, uh, and even North America, now that we're really understanding what the American Indians were really doing and how advanced their society was, I think. Oh, and then it even had it with Montezuma. When Cortez shows up, Montezuma says. Phew, I've been doing the math, and we've been waiting for you guys for thousands of years. I'm glad you're back. So I think there was the trade, and then when the cataclysm happened, it stopped. And I think then we see the fragmentation of all the different societies trying to figure themselves out. We have hints of that. For example, in Herodotus, uh, who is another Greek who wrote about 100 years before Plato, he wrote this thing called the Histories. And in paragraphs 484 and 485, he mentions these people, one's called the Atrarians, the other's called the Atlanteans, but he spells it differently. And when we map out these provinces in northern Africa, it looks like they're two different provinces that would have been part of northern Africa, which explains why you would get two different linguistic, um, I'm sorry, phonetic-sounding um, uh, terms for the same word. Just like here in the U.S., uh, you know, if I go to Louisiana and I try and order a, a, a soda or a pop and then I go to Minnesota, Right? It's just a different dialogue. People talk differently, so it sounds differently. So if I'm a stranger and I'm trying to write it down, I'm going to write it down a little differently. So we find all kinds of evidence like that. And, and if you look at the cultures we know in Central South America, the Aztecs, and you look at Dogolin, which we know was real, you look at Cadiz, you look at the Sous Mesa, you look at what's going on, you know, Crete and Santorini, um, I think they're remnants of the society because it's scattered. But the capital was, the head of the snake was absolutely killed. And then what we have is a bunch of people trying to get organized and figure out what to do. And I think a lot of the cultures we see um, spawn from all those different provinces. For example, one of the twins, the eldest of the fifth set of twins, his name was Azores. Ah, there you go. (laughs) There you go. 
so I think it explains the Azor Islands. And when you look at the currents and you look at the Bimini Road, this is the, this theory even explains the Bimini Road, because if that was um, if that, that would have been above ground, and that is where you launch from. If you launch from the Bimini Road, the currents take you right to the Azor Islands, and if you miss the Azor Islands for some reason, you end up in Doggerland. So I mean, the whole thing just makes sense, and, and it becomes a very practical and easy way. Um, for life to have worked, and we're finding signs of it everywhere with the cave art. Oh, and let me, and Richard, I do want to make sure that the technology. This is something else. This is a unique contribution, and we've just found this within the past month. Have you? I'm sure you, you've heard of the Malta part ruts. Are you, are you familiar with those? No, no. Really? The, okay. Malta cart ruts are very famous. What what they are? They look like cart ruts, and they are they go down from six inches to a foot or two all over the bedrock, all over Malta, which is just south of um, Sicily. And while they look like cart ruts, they, they, they practically can't be cart ruts because they're not even enough and the wheels would break. But what's crazy about them is there's thousands of them, and not only are they cut into the bedrock, but they're cut into the bedrock that runs as much as 40 feet underwater all over um, the Mediterranean. So clearly, you know, you're not going to cut bedrock 40 feet underwater if it's 40 feet underwater, so that they had to be made when the Mediterranean waters were lower, which, of course, takes you back to the last ice age. These, right. what, what, what the Malta cart ruts are, they're actually early versions of what's called a Tesla valve, which is a way of controlling the flow of water without increasing the pressure of water. So what I believe these things are is basically um, agricultural infrastructure, like plumbing. You, you know, you throw a couple feet of topsoil on top of it, and you've got an, a farm you can irrigate as well as we irrigate any farm today. They're about three feet, three to three and a half feet apart. Well, about 10 miles north of the Rishat structure on the mountain range that would have been to the north of the, the lake that they sat in, I, I found that same exact cart rut technology, only it's on an order of magnitude of about 100 times bigger. So instead of being three to three and a half feet apart, they're uh, 300 feet apart. And they run for hundreds, thousands of miles. And the cool thing about it is we, we can date it because they're covered by something called salt evaporites. Um, and what is, when evaporite forms, when salt, you know, the, the, all salt is sodium chloride, it all comes from the sea. So when this tsunami came in, the water sat, it, eventually it evaporated and left all this salt. And then the salt cooked in the sun for thousands of years, and it formed a crust over the land. So we've got all these canals, and, and we've got strip mining that the Atlanteans were doing, and all kinds of stuff, but it's been frozen in time because it's under two or three inches of these salt evaporites, which, which are hard as hard as rocks. So we got really lucky. And what's cool is the evaporite sits above all this human work that we found, but it runs underneath the sands of the Sahara. So the salt evaporate protected from wind erosion, and now the sands are sitting on top of it. So basically everything the Atlanteans did on this giant plain, which they built a 10,000 stadia uh, canal around, it's all preserved. It's all sitting there. Um, I'm just trying to gin up enough interest so someone will go look at it. Are you planning to go there? Uh, I like my air conditioning in my house. David Stig Hansen, <laughs> my, my brother from another mother, we got the same first name. Uh, he, he, he will go. In fact, I've, he knows where these locations are, and, and he knows I want to get samples so that we can try and do some testing on it. Uh, so when he goes back, the problem is, and these are like on top of mountains, and they're, you know, this is the Sahara Desert. So he went in October. It was 140 degrees, and you're wow. and you have to drive hundreds of miles from what we, you know, what civilization, but what we, you know, it's not American or Canadian civilization. It's very brutal out there. And, you ha and, I mean, to get into the country, you have to go in through the president's office, 
Uh, you have to pay for a liaison. They assign two people who uh, work for the president who will always be like three or 400 feet behind you and just monitor everything you do. You can't bring drones. Well, you, you can bring drones, but they'll, they'll confiscate them. You know, so I mean, it's just a tough place to get to. Um, but yeah, he's going to go back and we're going to keep working it for sure. All right, let's go to the uh, phones. West of the Rockies, Howard is in Vancouver, Washington. Howard, welcome to Coast. Hello, Richard and David. Hi there. Uh, this is a fascinating conversation tonight. Uh, now, uh, if Atlantis existed in the Mediterranean region, uh, it probably would, if it were as, as advanced and, and as ancient as, uh, as we believe, uh, it would have influenced uh, the entire region for centuries afterwards. Now, uh, there is one artifact that I've uh, read about that, uh, that uh, seems to uh, uh, answer that question. It's called the uh, Antikythera machine. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. I've seen it. I've seen it in the museum in Athens. I've seen it. Have you? Yes. yes this, this, uh, uh, supposedly, it was uh, discovered by Greek sponge divers in uh, 1900. And it sat in the basement of the uh, museum in Athens for another 50 years before it uh, finally split open and they opened it up and uh, discovered that it uh, contained uh, over 30 gears. And uh, it uh, proved to be a astronomical calculator. It can calculate the, uh, the sun, moon, the uh, planets very accurately. Now, uh, if I've seen photographs of the gears. Uh, it looks like modern machine work. Uh, there are rivets and screws, and uh, it looks like something that could have been that's very contemporary. It's not. Uh, it, it proves to me that uh, that uh, there really was uh, a level of uh, of uh, technology in the ancient world that's been lost, and uh, perhaps uh, these stories of Atlantis uh, substantiate that. Great call, Howard. Your thoughts on that, David? Yeah, there's actually, and I, I don't have it in my notes, there, there's a clock tower, it's like in Prague or somewhere in Europe, that keeps track of the dates and the planets and all the same stuff I think that this device does. One of the yes, you're right, it's in Prague. It is in Prague, yes. Is it, it is in Prague? I think that's where it yeah. is. Um, one of the big challenges when you're navigating the world is, is longitude, because you don't have a fixed point. Like um, latitude, north and south, you know, you have the north star, so you can kind of figure angles out. Um, longitude, you don't have that, so you need a timekeeping device or something that can tell you what the time is, where you left, so you can kind of measure the stars from, in that regard. And I think that's what this device is. Just like I think the, the Malta cart ruts are, are agricultural plumbing, I think this device is just um, something you would take on a ship, and you can twist it left and right and align the stars to what you see, and it will tell you, you know, the time in different places, and you can use that longitudinally to, to navigate. Because, you know, because you don't have any other fixed point. It just, to me, that makes complete sense that that would be what it is. It was found underwater, right? So whatever boat it was on sank, we think. Um, and it's a practical use for, for, the, for the device. And if we just, you know, if we look at this stuff practically, I think the answers are right there. So you have, you know, pretty well nailed this case shut. Um, I mean, is is there going to be a, a peer-reviewed article? Are we going to get a, a in boldface type a New York Times headline saying case closed? You know, I, like as, as I mentioned, I, I'm still learning how to communicate this, and I don't always do a good a job as I could. So, my plan: I'm writing a book called Fingerprints of the Atlanteans, 
which is a title that I've, I've very specifically picked. And it's going to be out in December of this year. And it's going to be kind of the book, you know, it's going to be a Graham Hancockian. It's going to be a tomb. It's going to be a big book where I lay the whole thing out in painstaking detail. And I'm going to write it like I'm writing an academic paper, even though I hate that world. But, you know, it, it'll be, it'll, it'll be um, of a quality that could be peer-reviewed. Now, the problem is finding a peer to review it can be a challenge. But at least I'll get it in one place, and then I'll see if I can get momentum behind them behind it as long as I've done a good job of laying it out. Because to my mind, it, it's found. It's closed. And I've, I've done, I have done a good job on the YouTube videos. There's 29 of them when it comes to Atlanta. So it takes a lot to lay the whole thing bare. Um, but, no, it's solved. The, 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 the evidence is overwhelming that this is what Plato was talking about, and he called it Atlantis, so that's what I'm calling it. Uh, is Graham Hancock seen your book? No. Um, and Graham Hancock and then uh, Randall Carson and then Jimmy Corsetti, they're kind of three big names in, in Atlantis right now. Graham has got his own challenges with, his, with the stuff he did on Netflix, but he has taken Atlantis as a brand, and he uses it to talk about any prehistoric civilization of, of any level of advancement all over the world. And at first, I didn't understand why he was doing that. It, matter of fact, it irritated me. But now I do understand because it's just an easy way. Everyone's, everyone knows that name. So if you're talking about something, you know, you're talking about Easter Island, whatever, and you say Atlantis, they kind of get it. Uh, Randall Carlson uh, thinks it's the Azores, and he has some, a very complicated theory as to why uh, my theory is it was the Azores, and, and everything he says about it is right, but it wasn't the Azores weren't the capital. It's impossible. Um, so, but they would have been one of the richest provinces because all of the trade flowing from the Americas would have flown through the, flowed through the Azores. Uh, but, yeah, but to, to answer your question, I'm, I'm going to work on the book. Once the book's done, I'll have something that can be evaluated critically, um, and then we'll see, we'll see what happens. Uh, just very quickly, we just have about a minute here, but I wanted to get back to Herodotus just for a second because – um, and he was, you know, going around the known world at the time, sort of compiling the histories. What did he learn about the uh, the Atlanteans? He, he kind of described them as weird people. Yeah, well, he, you know, the Atlanteans he runs into are really weird. Uh, they live on top of salt piles, and they build their houses out of salt. Uh, they have no well, – it's not they don't have a written language, but they refuse to allow anyone in their presence to write anything down. Uh, they – will tell you the names of their kings and stuff, but again, they won't let you write it down, so they don't have names. Uh, they don't dream. Uh, they don't eat meat, right? There are vegetarians. Uh, and they spend their days cursing the sun, which is hmm. pretty weird behavior. Right, which may speak to the maybe the something to do with the cataclysm in 9600 B.C. I, I think it's a I think I think Herodotus has captured a cultural memory, because if, if it was... Um, you know, a combination. If something hit the Earth and the Earth shook, it would the sun would look like it's doing funny things. So it would not be unreasonable to blame the sun, right? To curse the sun, which we we see. And the same thing with writing. Maybe they they felt like you know they had written too much stuff down. Uh, just all these weird um, eccentricities, however you say it, uh, seem to be to me. And when you look at where he's talking about, he's talking about the northern coast of uh, Africa, Libya, to the Atlas Mountains. It's exactly where we think two of the provinces was, and it's exactly where the remnants of the civilization would have ended up if, if a tsunami came in off the West Coast. So it all makes sense. And the last piece, which I know I'm probably out of time, but we've got the Piri-Reese map, which shows right where the Rishat structure is. It shows a city uh, surrounded by a ring of water, 
up a riverway that's blocked by a shawl of mud. And I can go that's into the, that, or my videos go into that. Yeah, so there's lots of proof for this thing. All right, and the the, the uh, Piri Reese map dates to about 1514, so there you go. Uh, David, fantastic work. Thank you so much for this. David Edward. For George Norrie, George Knapp, Lisa Lyons, Stephanie Smith, Tom Danheiser, Dan Galati, Chris Burroughs, Donna Walker, Tim Banal, and Sean Lattisor, I'm Richard Serrett. Thank you for your ears and your voices, your beautiful voices. Until next time, so long for now.